0: Uh, And his talk today is titled, Human Action in the Context of COVID.
1: Yeah, I got it. Thank you, you, man. Hello, everybody. So I'm going to talk about COVID, but don't worry, I'm not gonna get into a bunch of, uh, I'm not gonna try to adjudicate the science. What I'm gonna talk about is totalitarianism. In the process of that, I'm gonna argue that the state is just, is larger than the government. And I think that'll make sense in the context of COVID because we can see how the state or the government, I should say, is enrolling these agents into the state like the people on the street who are suddenly enforcing things, like the, the airline flight attendant who can actually have you arrested if you don't have a mask on. And like the companies that are being, <clears throat> that have more than hundred employees who can now f- have you, who can be fined, but will fire you for not uh, being vaccinated. And I'll and I will talk about big digital, what I call big digital, which is uh, the uh, propaganda arm <clears throat> that basically enforces uh, the entirety of the narrative, uh, and I'll explain why they do in 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 a minute. So a specter is haunting the world, the increasing prospect of a new totalitarianism. Unlike the specter of communism, this specter originates from those in power and not from the underground revolutionaries, although it is arguable that communism may always have been an undertaking of the elites. Uh, Rather than haunting only Europe, however, this specter casts a shadow across the entire human race. Uh, It is uh, such that one wonders how one could plan for a future, if at all. Consider Australia, once one of the world's liberal democracies. This could be the future for America and and everywhere else for that matter. Um, This is the case, here's what's going on there. You've probably seen some clips. Citizens and non-citizens are alike trapped on the landmass. They can't leave. They're not allowed to fly. They can't leave the country. Unless they have a good reason, and there never seems to be one. Large swaths of the population have been prisoners in their homes and neighborhoods for months. The Australian military enforces a curfew in New South Wales and the COVID-safe app enforces one in South Australia. The state sends random texts to the homebound prisoners via the app. Those under house arrest have 15 minutes to respond before the police are sent or not. We don't tell them how often or when on a random basis they have to reply within 15 minutes, the premier explained. Just as in Jeremy Benton's Panopticon, the prisoners are never sure if they are being watched, although they may be at any time. And those who've dared to venture beyond a block beyond their neighborhood uh, are apprehended by the police and choked, handcuffed, slammed face down on the pavement, sprayed in the face with noxious chemicals, and hauled off to who knows where for their own good, don't you know? Those rallying for their freedoms are hailed and struck with rubber bullets. Citizens are encouraged to report on other citizens for behavior that they have been told is akin to murder. A man sneezed in an elevator and then left his apartment building, triggering a nationwide manhunt in which the population was enlisted. Rescue dogs were shot dead under the false pretense of rescuing people. Although slightly less draconian, severe measures have been enforced in other liberal democracies including the U.S., the U.K., Germany, France, Canada, and New Zealand. Worldwide, millions have already or will have lost their jobs for vaccine noncompliance. This includes healthcare workers who just last month were hailed as heroes by those who now cheer on their removal. They are now to be dispensed with like so many used syringes. And to sink the knife in deeper, healthcare workers are dismissed for vaccine disobedience Uh, and are ineligible for unemployment in New York, while New York and Connecticut plan to replace them with the National Guard. We should remember that the COVID regime came on the heels of an already advanced illiberalism, as seen in the censorship, the onslaught of nonstop propaganda, the proliferation of doublespeak, the endless gaslighting, the political witch hunts, and the cancellation rituals reminiscent of the Cultural Revolution and the Stalinist purges. The methods have been amplified under the COVID regime to breathtaking effect. Now we not only have cultural and political, but also scientific and medical cancellation. In fact, open scientific inquiry has been deemed verboten, deviationism from the science, a new medical Lysenkoism promoted by COVID cult leaders. Deviant academics, scientists, doctors, and all the unvaccinated are falsely blamed, vilified, isolated, shamed, and punished. The purges are sustained by relentless propaganda. It should come as no surprise that what I call big digital corporations, I'm sorry, It should come as no surprise that what I call big digital corporations, Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and others, are intimately connected to the big to big pharma and the vaccine regime. Fact, Factbook's uh, check, uh, fact checker, face check, uh, factcheck.org, is funded by uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which owns $1.8 billion in Johnson & Johnson stock. Google's parent company, Alphabet, owns the capital investment firm, GV, formerly Google Ventures. GV is one of the institutional investors in the UK firm, Vacatech, the biotech startup behind the COVID-19 vaccine developed by AstraZeneca and Oxford University. As the pandemic rolled out in 2020, Vacatech was one of the most valuable companies in the portfolio of the university-affiliated Oxford Sciences Innovation Group although it had yet to bring a single drug to market. Sequoia Capital China also is invested in Vacatech during its IPO. Sequoia uh, Capital, meanwhile, is invested in Apple, Google, LinkedIn, Oracle, PayPal, YouTube, and Zoom. I'm talking about the infiltration of Chinese government interests in our, uh, in our situation. That's undeniable and... Um, also an extension of the state. Is it any wonder that big digital corporations censor COVID-related content that runs counter to the official propaganda? The full power of the state is behind the COVID regime. But the state is not only the government. It is the entirety of the clique in power, to quote Henry Hazlitt. The clique includes the officials in the American and Chinese Politburo, as I call them otherwise known as the Biden administration and the CCP. But it also includes powerful individuals like Bill Gates, Anthony Fauci, the notorious Dr. Wen, and many others, as well as nearly all major cultural and educational institutions, multinational corporations, non-governmental organizations, nonprofits, national and supranational agencies, churches, synagogues, and many members of the general population who are essentially enrolled as state agents. Of course, it includes big digital. These governmental and extra-governmental entities maintain and enforce the same hegemonic ideology. Their ideology is not only leftist and authoritarian, it is totalitarian. But the neo-Marxists and the silent liberals and conservatives do not recognize it as such. To them, it is just the way things are and the way they have always been. This could not be further from the truth. Instead, after a long march, the woke or socialist infiltration of the American state is almost total. The COVID response is an extension of of the permanent revolution which accelerated rapidly from 2016 and if not before. Now I've, re- I've included religious bodies in the state because they have been largely co-opted. Their beliefs were already hijacked by the woke movement before most became complicit in the COVID regime, which has since transmuted religious meaning and symbolism into the rituals of the COVID cult. This represents not only the secularization of the religious sphere, but also its communization. As Catholic Archbishop Vigano stated in May, the rituality of the present pandemic is quite obvious, especially in the way they have wanted to give the vaccine a sacramental value. As if on cue, the unelected governor of New York recently proclaimed that vaccine, the vaccine was <laughs> ordain, uh, divinely ordained. Vaccination is apparently a sacrament instituted by God to give grace. (laughs) To to reject the vaccine is to reject life and all that is good, including God himself. Jesus, as it turns out, was a vaccine manufacturer. (laughs) Perhaps a stockholder in in Pfizer or Moderna. We have learned that he preached that only the vaccinated and vaccinated and vaccinated and vaccinated (laughs) may enter the kingdom of heaven. The Covidians are the apostles sent out into the world to spread the good news of salvation by vaccination. And he said unto them, whosoever shall not receive the vaccine and, and booster shots, nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. Who, ju- who just thought, who are these unbelievers? Just who are these people? They are people who selfishly claim individual autonomy and bodily integrity. They may include the vaccinated. It isn't enough to be vaccinated. One must confess and profess the almighty power of the vaccine. These reprobates dare to decide whether they are injected with an experimental cocktail ad infinitum. They have the temerity to think for themselves. They must be excluded from society. They must be condemned to die alone after living and begging in the shadows. They include heretics who who refuse to recite word for word the catechism of the science. Some of them even refuse to leap forward, denying the inevitability and sanctity of the Great Reset. It has been declared that the COVID lockdowns must be followed by climate change lockdowns, plus other Uh, restrictions. The earth must be protected from these meat-eating, locomoting, and unfettered procreating masses. Yes, there are those who dare to suggest that this progressive and incremental vaccine program is akin to the progressive mass eugenics program of the last century. Speaking of conspiracy theories, the mendacity of the COVID regime essentially generates them as if spontaneously. Once people realize that the gospel of COVID is a tissue of lies, they begin to construct sacrilegious narrative alternatives, ones that make sense of the forbidden data. I won't attempt to adjudicate that data here. I'll leave that to a growing body of medical doctors and scientists. As of this writing, some 7,800 have signed the Rome declaration ex cathedra a creed de to alert citizens about the deadly consequences, quote, of the COVID-19 policy, such as denying patient access to life-saving early treatments, disrupting the sacred physician-patient relationship and suppressing open scientific discussion for profits and power. I would put power first. They assert that the COVID treatment regimen, quote, may actually constitute crimes against humanity. So does a group of Nazi concentration camp survivors. Yes, there is some comparison to be made. A day or two after the Rome Declaration was posted, the Spartacus letter was published. You may not have heard of this. This audacious rebel dared to engage the science on scientific terms. The letter must have contained some forbidden truth because it was immediately scrubbed by Big Digital. Although republished in several venues, it remains virtually undiscoverable. The esoteric language of the letter describes the effects of the virus and the vaccines in precise scientific terms that only a member of the cognoscenti could muster. It It may be the most detailed scientific analysis of the virus and vaccine that I have read to date. It then makes such declarations as the following, quote, The elite are trying to pull up the ladder, erase upward mobility for large segments of the population, call political opponents and other undesirables, and put the remainder of humanity on a tight leash, rationing our access to certain goods and services that they have deemed high impact, such as automobile use, tourism, meat consumption, and so on. Naturally, they will continue to have their own luxuries as part of a strict caste system akin to feudalism. I find it more and more difficult to resist such conclusions. I have described this as part of an effort to establish what I call corporate socialism, or actually existing socialism on the ground with corporate monopolists tightly coupled with the government on top. I have also called it capitalism with Chinese characteristics, This would explain why the elites propagate socialist ideology and rhetoric to the public while engaging in economic fascism themselves. The question inevitably arises, what should be done? I'm not going to make recommendations for what everyone should do. That would be a collectivism with which I don't agree. You may decide to live in a shack in the woods and I may decide to stay in the city and do battle with the passport mandate police with the unending booster requirements. But the point is to assert individual autonomy, not to corral people into silos. But no libertarian worthy of the name would ever suggest that a crisis justifies the incremental stripping of the natural rights of any human being. And no libertarian worthy of the name should ever be complicit in quarantining the healthy, whether in a camp, facility, institution, Town, state, or in their homes. You're going to like this one. I'm talking to you now, Cato Institute. Now, We'll hear recommendations for what should be done. I mean, later this afternoon, Tom Woods will talk about um, secession, something that's very interesting to me. There are Republican dissidents, I'll call them, that are talking about a convention of states, which I find ludicrous, as if 34 states are going to conspire together to, you know, we can't, you know, that's absurd. But I'll talk about something which I believe is rooted in the pragmatic action under totalitarianism, which I think now we're not totally under. As Henry Hazlitt put it, in the road to totalitarianism, we are not under what he called total totalitarianism. Not yet, anyway. But Hazlitt continued by saying, quote, most Americans may prove incapable of recognizing this evil until it has grown beyond the point of control. And I would say it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. I believe that we need to look at exemplary dissidents from the former Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc to respond to our contemporary conditions. I think it's that bad. We're all here without masks today. Things seem free enough. We'll see how it goes. I believe that we need to look to uh, these dissidents and to see how they responded to their contemporary conditions. What were the responses to totalitarianism? As one of these dissidents, the Czech playwright and later president of uh, Czechoslovakia, Václav Havel wrote, when those who have decided to live within the truth have been denied any direct influence on the existing social structures, not to mention the opportunity to participate in them. When these people begin to create what I have called independent life of, the independent life of society, this independent life begins of itself to become structured in a certain way. Sometimes there are only very few embryonic indications of this process of structuring. At other times, the structures are already quite well developed. Their genesis and evolution are inseparable from the phenomenon of dissent, even though they reach far beyond the arbitrarily defined area of act- activity, usually indicated by that term. And this is the term that I would like to emphasize, dissidents. What these dissidents did was to build what another Czech political thinker and dissident, Václav Benda, called parallel structures. Now just what are parallel structures? The mere mention of the phrase will stir the imaginations of those who understand what this might mean. They are more or less organized communities usually built by dissidents. They are sites where resistance to totalitarian bureaucracies allow for the expression of freedom and creativity. Their organic output has historically included dot books private performances, seminars, exhibitions, periodicals, alternative education forums, parallel universities, parallel information networks, even embryonic parallel economies. Together they constitute a second culture as it were, a culture otherwise repressed and deleted from the state as I've defined it. Eventually these parallel structures may spawn a parallel polis and a renewed political possibility. In our context, parallel structures may be networks of people building communities of mutual support and communications, but not necessarily ideological homogeneity. Many such groupings and parallel structures already exist. They include media and communication networks, some even uh, within the online spaces many of us already frequent and they may be formed around podcasts and podcasters, websites and writers, peer-to-peer channels and programmers, and radio broadcasts and their listeners. To create and sustain environments most conducive to liberty, these networks must aim to be as decentralized and independent of big digital as possible. I nevertheless recommend that people retain the beachheads they have secured on mainline social media platforms and spread out from there. Our parallel structures include parallel educational organizations and institutions like Tom Woods's Liberty Classroom. They include what I now call what are now called freedom cells, which are local and touring communities of support and exchange, both social and economic. Why are these needed? Because people may not be able to exchange money in the near future for the right things, the things they want. On the the specifically economic front, they include those empowering themselves and others to attain financial literacy, independence, and responsiveness. Now I'm not going to say that Bitcoin is our lord and savior, but Bitcoin communities represent structures of potential resistance and survivability especially considering the frightening prospect of a global digital currency, which would mean total control over buying, selling, and saving. Parallel structures include religious and spiritual groupings, not only some churches but also informal gatherings for mutual support and sustenance. In, political, in the political realm, the Mises Caucus is currently a parallel political structure. It provides a political home and community for those disaffected with the legacy parties and an important niche within the Libertarian Party for those seeking principled economic and political policies and the unapologetic assertion of individual human rights under all circumstances. Now, I'm going to end with a plea. I plead that those of us already inhabiting parallel structures and those forming new ones uh, remain flexible and willing to translate without compromising their own and others' political language and symbolics into a common language of resistance, survival, and human action. I think you know what I'm saying. If not, just ask. Otherwise, our parallel structures may become isolated from others by particularism. We are up against totalitarianism. That is why I suggest that we primarily identify ourselves as dissidents first, and only secondarily as party and caucus supporters. As such, we may become the germ of a future, future economic, political, and social renaissance. Thank you.
0: So, All right, yeah. Professor Recklenwald well, is going to do some Q&A, and I'm going to exercise host privilege and ask the first question. Yeah. You described – you, uh, you uh, made an observation that I've seen about how, on one hand, the universities, the media, pop culture, they are espousing a Marxist message. Yeah. The actual Mechanations are uh, fascist or, as Mises would say, Right. Marxist. Is there any precedent of, uh, I don't know, first of all, what should we call this? I kind of <laughs> like the term progressive fascism. Yeah. And uh, is there any precedent for this? Yes,
1: China. <laughs> China's the precedent. That is, they have state-directed and connected uh, pro- for-profit production uh, without a civil society, no middle class as such, and uh, a kind of fascist economic, of economic fascism, and by economic fascism, uh, we mean corporatism, in effect, uh, this kind of collusion between the state and the uh, approved producers, who have been accepted into the cabal of uh, well, what I would call cartel of would-be monopolists, and they use um, particular ideology as a means to gain acceptance into this cabal of uh, of, of producers. There's, that's how they dis- they're using. Um, Uh, what they're calling ESG scores to get rid of certain producers. This is environmental, social, and governance scores on the stock exchange, which are used as a way to make sure that corporations that aren't sufficiently woke will be starved out of capital. Wokeness is not a joke. Wokeness is a real, ideological means of leveraging out and getting rid of competition and creating monopolies. Uh, It is a part of a certain agenda. It is not something that we should just laugh at because it's a serious thing. It is a means of discriminating between certain groups and peoples and companies and to empower some and leave others completely out of the picture, Uh, starve them off of capital. But China, I think, is the model. Uh, I really appreciated your discussion of sort of the parallels of the dissidents of the Soviet era. I've never really heard that before, and I think that's a really great thing because it also, you know, they won at the end of the day. Yes, they did. Um, But I I guess my question for you, uh, we've seen some of the struggles of parallelism because of the very centralized and powerful nature of modern technology. What do you see as the key differences that current dissidents in that sort of anti-Soviet model would need to take to try and win that long fight because of the changes in the, yeah, the a huge, technology landscape? that's a huge question, and uh, see, I, I mean, these, what I call big digital or the Google archipelago, they have enhanced and extended the power of the state to unbelievable dimensions. If you don't think that Google's involved in state operations, I got another thing for you. Um, they are effectively... Contractors—that's one. They were funded by the uh, CIA's uh, Incutel group in the first place. They have um, uh, vested interest in the the vaccine program, but they have more than that. They have interest in controlling uh, information to the level of your DNA and and so forth. And this is not only for surveillance and tracking, but well, that's primarily what it's for. They say it's for uh, health, of course. Uh, Health is now the big, um, health is the code word for basically what they're trying to smuggle under, Uh, but the the way to oppose it is much more difficult because of this, because of the extent and power of uh, big digital and their enhancement of state, of state, of the state as essentially state apparatuses, Uh, it takes all kinds of uh, techniques and subversion to First of all, we, we have to move away from them as much as possible, and it's very difficult. It's almost impossible because they've tied everyone together in this um, cartel, and um, one cartel member, if you get thrown off of one cartel member's web uh, services, they'll, you go onto another, they'll just throw you off of that because this cartel has a very serious ideological cohesion, and they don't, if, they don't abide by any difference. Um, so, um, you know, I mean, if I had the answer to that, I'd be running the world. But I, I <laughs> not that I want to. Uh, but the point is that I think it's it's a very difficult uh, situation under uh, that we're under because of it. That these corporations, these extensions of the state, have enhanced the power of surveillance and other things to such an extent that. Um, uh, I don't believe in like revolution as such, you know, like violent revolution. I don't believe in that. I think it's kind of like, a, um, we're gonna have to develop parallel structures and wh- what are they, they're gonna have to be, we're gonna have to figure that out as we go because we didn't, we, this is unprecedented. The COVID crisis is unprecedented in being a, world, a worldwide global uh, move on the road, to totalitarianism, as Haslam put it, the road to totalitarianism, and we're on the road to it. I'm not saying we're there, but we're on the road to it, and uh, this is unprecedented historically. As far as I know, I've never seen a global totalitarian movement. There's no outside of it now, which is part of the thing. They, they don't let there to be an outside. One thing about totalitarians they don't want you to get out, okay? so. They don't like you leaving, and so secession is going to be very difficult because they don't want you going. Uh, they, like to, they like containment, and they have managed to do that. I mean, communist countries did not allow travel, and now Australia doesn't allow travel. So this is one of the techniques. So it's hard to get outside of a system that's global. You got one over here, but I, I kind of want to give a follow-up answer
0: uh, to that okay and and let you know what we as the Mises caucus are doing because we are actually grappling with these same questions as an organization and are we going to get cancelled and all this sort of thing now this this isn't my area of expertise so bear with me but the the general thing that we're doing that we're in the beginning stages of is starting what we call the Mises mesh network and what that's going to be is an array of servers that we own where we take our website we take eventually even our CRM, our email. We take everything onto our own servers, and a mesh network is an array of servers that are structured structured in such a way that there's no single point of failure. So even if a couple of them got taken out, then it would still it would still operate, and we can. Uh, Run all of our functions. Now we can't replicate the fact that there is eight billion people on on Facebook or whatever it is, but we can maintain a presence there in order to funnel them into our ecosystem and into the Mises Mesh network. And then once we establish our own ecosystem on our own servers, the plan is to yeah, I didn't tell you about this; you're finding out now. But the plan is to then invite the rest of the liberty movement into our into Mises Mesh network. So if Michael Rechtenwald bought a machine. Uh, and and hosted his website on us, Federate Access, so that only he has it, his machine adds to our security, our machines add to his security, and basically the Mises Mesh Networks becomes the uncancelable home of the whole liberty movement. That's the big picture.
1: That's the parallel structure. Absolutely. And
0: now we've got a question.
1: Anything else? Uh, As someone who knows a lot of those disaffected Republicans that were really relying on the idea of um, a constitutional convention, could you expound on why you don't feel that that's a viable path? Well, I think it takes 34 states to convene, and you have to get 34 states to agree, and I don't think there are 34 states that will agree to convene, such as to make a constitutional amendment. Uh, Because there's there's such polarity. The only, the only states that would do it would be red states because they're the only ones that want out, so to speak. Uh, they want out of the tyranny. Uh, the red states are the tyranner, tyrannizers, so they don't want to leave most, I'm not saying the people within the states, I'm talking about the corporate legislature, yeah. Hi, um, appreciate your talk. I uh, was wondering how explicit this ideology is uh, among those who are participating in this totalitarian movement, whether it's a relatively small number of intellectuals or whether the no. the Zuckerbergs and all of them, are they really driven by this ideology explicitly, or is it a crime of opportunity more than? Well, more? that's a great question. I mean, I've traced, you know, and looked at Google and YouTube and uh, uh, looked at their ideology and inside their company and out what they, what they their inward-facing ideology to their employees and the outward-facing ideology to the public—it's very much the same. Uh, and uh, I've noted that you know it's very leftist. I mean, <laughs> if you look at their hate uh, crime—or not hate crime—their hate speech uh, rules and regulations, everything is only based in one way. It never says anything that would discriminate against some leftist, or for example, who calls for the, putting capitalists up against the wall and shooting them in the head, things like that, or just you know. In fact, the former uh, CEO, or I think, president of Twitter, tweeted that: "Put the put every capitalist up against the wall and shoot them in the head." This is the former <laughs> president of Twitter. So I tried to figure out how was it that these so-called capitalist corporations had this kind of socialist leftist ideology. What's going on here? And I don't think it's just that you know, they were educated in universities and they came up and then they could change the culture. I think there's some more to it. I think that's a, that's a part of the explanation, but it's not sufficient. I think the sufficient explanation is they're monopolists. And there, there has been many instances in the, in the uh, history of, you know, of the 20th century of monopolists attempting to establish socialism because socialism is a monopoly. It's, it's just a, a state-directed monopoly as opposed to a corporate state-directed democ- uh, uh, monopoly. So I, I think that the, I don't know that they're avid believers, although I think most people that do perpetrate ideology are believers. I take them at their word. I don't want to get into their intentionality; it's too impossible to discern. But yeah, I think they're, they're, that's why I think they espouse this.
0: I got a question for you over here.
1: So um, I grew up in rural Virginia; still live there. My high school was surrounded by cow fields. We had drive your tractor to school day. And um, good for you. <laughs> yeah.
0: So in the last four years. Um, it seems like probably 30% of every person I've ever known has been sucked into this crazy,
1: cosmopolitan, leftist, globalist ideology. Mm -hmm. You know, people I knew from high school. Literally, we had one black kid in my grade, we had like one gay kid in our grade, and now there's like five people I've known from high school who are transgender
0: and blah, blah, blah. What is it about this ideology that is, so
1: enticing to just regular well, people. Well, it's vampirizing on, it. it's kind of a, um, what it does is it takes um, what we all believe in equality and it, it's a, um, uh, it's a vampiristic on this. It basically says, oh, if you really believe in equality, then you believe in this, and then this, and then this, so you believe in equity. If you're, if, you know, so it, it's um, parasitic on, on um, classical liberal principles, and then uses that to gain strength and then change the agenda slightly by changing language slightly in t- from equality to equity and things like that. And uh, from in fairness, you know, this is the language that the uh, gray resetters are using, uh, Klaus Schwab and all that, fairer, greener future, which means basically, you know, socialism for you. and. Um, you know, monopolists to control the economy for us, which just so happens to be forwarded by the COVID lockdown regime. I'm not saying that they set it up. I'm just saying it's working to that effect. Yeah, uh, it's, um, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's pervasive. Uh, and, you know, it's, um, th- there is, uh, I mean, it started, in, you know, there's a hundred year history to this. And it accelerated with Trump They used Trump as a means to um, mobilize and actually, interestingly enough, get the left on the side of the political establishment. (laughs) And they're now the biggest supporters of big tech, big pharma, um, and the whole political establishment, including the neocons, in effect. I mean, this is absurd. Uh, Basically, they managed by using this kind of, uh, what did they do? That's kind of a um, decoy effect, right? Uh, or a foil is really what they use Trump as a foil in order to get the whole left to consolidate it against Trump and in favor of what actually becomes the the entire political establishment. And then they have had control over the education system for uh, 70, 80 years. Um, You know, And some people trace it to the Frankfurt School and their invasion and, well, it wasn't an invasion at first. They were just like four Four, four German Jewish intellectuals who came over from, um, who fled Nazi Germany and then set up at Columbia and began to uh, disseminate critical theory, which is what critical race theory comes from. Uh, it all comes from the same root. Uh, and um, it, it accelerated into this wokeness thing around 2016 is when I ran into it. And, you know, I was a leftist, you know. I was actually a Marxist till so I said, look at these people. I mean, they scared the shit out of me. I was looking at the people. I'm like, what was I doing with these people? They're sick <laughs> uh, and uh, crazy. And uh, so, you know, totalitarian, really. They, they are really authoritarian, totalitarian type people. And I, I just had, I said, I can't have nothing further to do with them. Do you think there's a part inside person that's totalitarian? No, I don't believe in that. The totalitarian personality. Um, I, I, I would ascribe it to ideology. You know, uh, if it was if it was a totalitarian uh, personality, then we're going to have. A, I'm not saying it's just inconvenient for our purposes, <laughs> but it, it would be. Uh, but it doesn't explain why certain places that are you know not totalitarian with uh, the same kind of population base. If this existed everywhere, then you would have one state or another wherever it was. In other words, you'd have either mostly totalitarianism or you'd have mostly uh, classical liberal society, and it's not like that. It seems to be. You see whole countries succumbing to this. You know, it's an ideological virus. It's not. It's not a personality trait. Yeah. Um, Given that we're in a world where people kind of believe that the uh, establishment, the uh, cathedral, has their best interest at heart and uh, that they're competent, uh, it seems like there's a philosophical and ethical question that kind of underpins all of the assumptions around COVID, and it's that just living your normal life, the fact that you might get someone sick and you don't know that you won't get someone sick, is somehow an initiation of violence, yeah, um, and that's kind of used to justify the retaliation use of violence against those people. Yep. Yeah. Uh, kind of wonder if you could speak to the uh, more philosophical point that we should yep. just be able to live our lives and not be considered. It well, this is uh, tricky. Yeah, this is amazing. This is one of these cases where they have, uh, where they're parasitic on, on for example the, uh, the. Uh, You know, our principles, uh, they're parasitic on this by saying, you know, like, we believe in nonviolence, no no initiation of violence, and so the non-aggression principle, they kind of are parasitic and they suggest that just being you and the possibility that you may be infected is violence in itself. We have to really come back to fundamentals about what um, individual autonomy and and, uh, bodily autonomy signify, and that is that... um, and, and, and also the idea that you know, like, uh, living can't be considered just living can't be considered violence uh, of itself. You know whether <laughs> that one has the right to exist and not be considered a pestilent, uh, you know, a pestilence proliferator. Uh, so I mean, it just—it just comes back to, we have to get back to the principle of bodily and, and personal and individual autonomy and our rights to exist. And I think that you know this, this kind of guilt trip that people have been put on, which I think started with wokeness. I thought I may—I might have skipped that part of my talk where I talk about how wokeness was really set the stage for this COVID. This COVID response, this kind of uh, guilt tripping and vilifying and canceling and all that—the cancel culture feeds right into the COVID cancel culture, of canceling people out, of canceling doctors who are, di- you know, uh, dissident doctors who don't buy the science as such or at least question things and want open inquiry. Uh, it's all part of the same cultural base. And we need to reassert the principle of individual autonomy and the right to live. And that, that somebody is an inadvertent carrier, perhaps, of something is not a reason to, to prohibit them to have freedom, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if this is cheating, but I have two questions. First question Fine. is, you referenced in your uh, talk that you had a letter. That you had read. Uh, what? That was like the most like, specific. Yes. the like, letter. I don't know yeah, the name of that letter. It's called the Spartacus letter. Spartacus letter. Okay. Yeah. That try to use uh, DuckDuckGo or some other search. Google will not let you find it. Okay, and then my other question was, uh, so I'm actually in favor of secession, but I've heard the convention of states be brought up. And I just want to know what would happen after, even though I don't think it's likely, what yep. would happen after a convention of states is reached? Like, the, what, I don't what know. would be the goal of that? I don't, I don't know. I, I, here's something about the secession argument, though. Let me just go back to that. I don't know what would happen after a convention of states. They would try to amend the Constitution, but to what end? Who, I don't know. I mean, who, who is going to agree on 34 states or whatever? I don't, it's not going to happen. But secession, OK, so I've heard an argument against secession that is interesting that if you secede and become a different state, now there's the possibility that the state of the United States of America could attack you. (laughs) I mean, it's possible that they could actually now treat you as an enemy. Uh, So, hmm, I don't want that. This is why I've said parallel structures and sort of... So, I have in my novel Thought Criminal this group called uh, a network of thought deviationists. And they're basically trying to avoid the virus, which basically serves to connect their minds, their brains directly to collective mind. And so they're trying to avoid this. And they say the vaccine clears the virus, but it really installs it further. Um, So they have to insinuate themselves and actually in this network, they're in the middle of the world. They're not sort of physically removed. They're nevertheless deviants. Uh, deviationists, I should say. That's what the Soviets called basically anybody that didn't buy the party line. Um, so I don't think I, I, I'm trying to say that I don't think geographical cures are the answer. Yeah.
0: How are you doing? And thank you very much uh, for giving us this speech, this talk. Really appreciate it. My question to you with uh, the digital overlords that we have right now. Have you done any research or looked at the uh, AIs that they're accelerating with oh, yeah. regards to it? Because I'm familiar with the Google one that they had started many years ago in the early 90s. That was actually uh, uh, tracking how we uh, drive to work every morning oh, yeah. and what we do, and it could go about 15 to 20 days ahead and give them information on what we're going to be uh, doing. So thank you again, and I appreciate it.
1: Yep, sure. Um, yeah, there's not, not only does it track and trace, And surveil but there's also predictive algorithms that try to predict predict your behavior and then preempt it in some cases this is uh yeah it's 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 extremely (laughs) concerning and also the vaccine passport if it becomes digital of course this will be part of it and this is why i say and i argue and i will not back down on this that these corporations are being enlisted as state agents they're not simply some sort of you know free and they hate free enterprise they're against the free enterprise system. They want to monopolize the markets. But uh, yeah, these these uh, AI is a very con- concerning issue, and um, the uh, it's it's part of a certain agenda, I think, uh, to have co- you know more total control. And it'll be, it'll be sold under benefits, you know, enhancements. You're you're enhanced, you know, transhumanism. And I I've studied transhumanism. I taught transhumanism. And, uh, it, you know, it sounds wonderful, like you'll become, you know, you'll be able to live forever and all these things. I don't think so. I don't think that's going to be, that's going to uh, basically be part of the package for the uh, hoi polloi, as they would think of them. Oh, okay. Yes.
0: If we were living under a true free market system, would there be a place for tort when dealing with things like spreading disease, like COVID-19?
1: I'm sorry, yeah, what was that again? I couldn't quite hear it. Oh, sorry.
0: Um, if we were living in a true free market system and we were dealing with a pandemic like COVID-19, yeah. would there be a place for tort, or, does thing, or do things get too messy, or would the uh, private arbitration agencies basically sort all of these contentions out, which is the justification for why? we're having this authoritarianism that we're seeing now.
1: Yeah, I mean, there would be a lot of openings if, if we were under a real free market. I mean, first of all, I don't know that uh, there would be, uh, that I don't know that there would be anything other than private property. So then it would be up to the private property owner, whether you were allowed in their home or not, or their, you know, whatever, which would make things a lot different, right? Uh, and you could always find like-minded property owners that would be fine with you. Um, so, you know, I think it's, uh, it, there would be more, yes. I mean, it's not a free market because, you know, these vaccine producers have no liability and this was nonsense that they have been, but this is a state protection, of course, that they're exempt from liability and that means they can't be sued, at least under these experimental uh, vaccines, which are still in operation. They don't have Pfizer's Vaccine, the one that was so-called FDA approved. It doesn't, it's not in the marketplace. They're still using the emergency powers. So does that answer it? Um, I'm not. Oh, okay. I, I don't know. I mean, that, that's going to be a legal thing that where you'd have to prove intent and so forth, which is, you know, difficult. So uh, that's a legal question. And I, I don't want to adjudicate that yeah so you had mentioned to look to the CIS countries and this, this yeah um, and I know I, in my industry I work with a lot of people who were in you know st. Petersburg and, and Belarus and stuff like that and if you talk to them it's really like how did you get through this it's like we keep our head down and do what we're told and do stuff on the underground which yeah. is kind of what you were saying
0: but you know, is that is that admitting the inevitable? Like- no,
1: that isn't true. I don't think. I, I appreciate the point. These parallel structures actually don't hide, and they attempt to get larger and they get more strength as they as they grow, and that's the whole point. They're, they, then eventually, I don't know if I said this. They emerge into like a parallel polis, which then is a parallel political life, which then va- eventually. Uh, threatens the actual hegemonic uh, powers. So, so is the important part of that doing it in the open? Is that what you're saying? That's not necessarily the important part because they're not always going to be open. In some cases, they have to be clandestine to exist. We're still in the, in, at a point where we can do things in the open so far, although there are certain cancellation uh, questions. So there's, there's, needs, there's, there's a need for clandestine operations in some cases. Unfortunately, you know, yeah. Thank you, and uh, you know, I totally think you're everything you've been doing is heroic. So thank you. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you very much. We got a last question over here. Okay. So my question kind of picks up on the last one. Um,
0: you know, the parallel structures, obviously, they're great, and uh, we know why we need to do that. Is there any validity in accelerating the destruction of the existing structures,
1: or I guess, how would you? I don't know, can you expound on that? Should we be trying to take down the existing, you know? Uh, well, through pressure and through competition, frankly. I, I mean, like, for example, uh, I, I'm part of a f- founded... I'm, I don't just talk and write. I actually try to do things, too. So I started... <laughs> <laughs> I started to, uh, I started a parallel university, and I'm you know, I'm trying to get a whole cadre of inter, of professors from all over the country, not just one school, to challenge the you know the legacy institutions, and uh, with a parallel academic, academic in, uh, structure, and and it's competition that it win it, right? The open, you know, winning in the market, not trying to sabotage these other marketers, you know, but really win by competition, not by sort of like uh, violating their property rights and all that. I don't believe in violating our principles to do anything. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you.